Thank you for listening to this Calvary Aurora Bible study with Pastor Ed Taylor. We pray as you study through God's Word that you're blessed by God's abounding grace. Amen. Open your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 14 as we pick up where we left off last time. To the Bible study is entitled, People Suffer with Poor Leadership. And as we're studying through First and Second Kings, we'll be going back and forth between the kingdoms to learn of the various kings and their poor leadership for the most part. There are a few good kings. And what we're learning is history. The history of those following God during what's known as the kingdom age of Israel and Judah. And with history, it's good to learn from history, both good and bad. As Churchill put it this way, those that fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. And that's one of the reasons why we study the scriptures, because the Bible is spiritual history, taking us through the natural or the normal history of of people, and then God illuminating for us the spiritual truths behind the facts. And as we're studying the Bible, it is not just stuck in time. So don't think of history as just something that's stuck in time because the Bible goes much farther than a history book. And the Bible declares itself to be living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. So God is able to take history, what we know as history, that we might think is stuck in time, and make it come alive each and every time we open it where we learn the context of the passage, we learn the history surrounding the passage, and then we learn how God's applying it in our lives today. That's why Bible study is fascinating. We're studying scriptures not just for head knowledge. Now, I encourage you to take notes only because you forget things. And you tend to remember more when you hear and write down. And you can go back. I always love to go back over my notes of a Bible study that I've taken, uh, that I've listened to, and the notes that I've taken to remember where I was at the time or to be recalling something that, you know, once you, you know, if you think about it, uh, what did I teach five weeks ago? Many people, you wouldn't be able to, I don't even remember what I taught five weeks ago. Uh, The Holy Spirit does. And if I took notes on it or I have notes from what I taught, I can always go back and review what the Lord wants to, what, what he gave me. I know some uh, take notes right in their Bible. I do that too. So I've got paper notes and I also have notes right in my Bible where I can, as I'm reading something, I'll remember. And on occasion, I'll write a date to the note of when the Lord gave me that to that scripture and that fact. But we're studying the Bible not just for facts, but for life, for life change, for transformation, so that we learn to hear and do the word that we learn to receive the word of God, learning from good examples and learning from bad examples. And we ran out of time last week, last time we were together. So let's pick up in verse 21, where we read of Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. He reigned in Judah. Rehoboam was 41 years old when he became king. He reigned 17 years in Jerusalem, the city which the Lord had chosen out of all the tribes of Israel to put his name there. His mother's name was Naamah and Ammonitis. Now Judah did evil in the sight of the Lord, and they provoked him to jealousy with their sins which they committed more than all that their fathers had done. For they also built for themselves high places, sacred pillars, and wooden images on every high hill and under every green tree. And there were also perverted persons in the land, 
They did according to all the abominations of the nations which the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. So the perversion of Rehoboam and Judah is met with verse 25. Now it happened in the fifth year of King Rehoboam that Shishak, the king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem. And he took away the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house. He took away everything. He also took away all the gold shields which Solomon had made. Then King Rehoboam made bronze shields in their place and committed them to the hands of the captains of the guards who guarded the doorway of the king's house. And so it was, whenever the king went into the house of the Lord, that the guards carried them, then brought them back into the guard chamber. Verse 29. The rest of the acts of Rehoboam and all that he did, aren't they written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Judah? And there was war between Rehoboam and Jeroboam all their days. So Rehoboam rested with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. His mother's name was Naamah and Ammonitus. Then Abijam, his son, reigned in his place. Rehoboam, as the king, led the children of Judah into idolatry, building up high places of false worship, and encouraged the perversity among the people, replacing the one true God. Sometimes we'll look at our own culture and we'll just be shocked with what we see on, in our culture. And we'll just be shocked at what we see on the news. And we'll be shocked at the degradation of what's being projected and the sexual perversity and the wickedness of the land. And, and the shock comes because our comparison is built into a couple hundred years of history in our country. It's hard sometimes to look beyond just the history of our own country because we can look back just 50, 60 years ago and see a much more moral nation, a much more toned down nation. And it's just been in the last few years in our own culture here that this has seemed to increase. But when we read the Bible, we learn that it's always been among us. It's always been perversity and twistedness, sexual sin, Uh, taking advantage of one another, false worship, abandoning God. It's always been with us. Maybe even a part of your own life. And as it's always been with us, also verse 25 will be with us. And that is, it will not go unjudged. Yes, God in his grace and his mercy is waiting and he's waiting And he's waiting, calling a nation to repentance. But it's not just our nation. Every nation on the earth is corrupt. And wickedness abounds. And he's waiting, even as he he did with the nations of Canaan, 400 years. I would say God is patient. But there is coming a time where it will be no more. And let's just bring it down to us for a moment. As we've learned many times before, the spiritual principle of sowing and reaping, you're not getting away with what you think you're getting away with. It's not being approved by God. And in reality, it's not bringing you actually what you're looking for when you go off to the bottle, or you go off to the party, or you go off to the next relationship. The end result actually isn't even giving you what you're looking for, peace, satisfaction, contentment, a settled strength for living the day or the next day, or acceptance, all the things that false idols that we place before God, who God alone is the only source 
for those very things. A relationship with God through his son Jesus Christ is the only source for knowing how accepted you are in the beloved, how loved you are, how important you are, how valued you are. All of these empty things in the world doesn't bring about what you're looking for. And time and time again, you find yourself at another empty place and even more empty the next time with more loads of guilt and shame at being taken advantage of and being hurt. Shishak, the king of Egypt, comes and steals away, verse 26, all the treasures of the house of the Lord. Isn't that what sin does? It steals away all the treasures from the house of the Lord in your life. All the potential blessings All the previous blessings, sin has a way of ripping things off. It even makes a point where Shishak comes in and he took away everything. Took away everything. And then he makes note that one of the things that was taken away, which was very symbolic of the power and the height of the wealth of the kingdom of God under Solomon, he steals the golden shields. He takes them. And you would think at this point, Watching a king come and completely rip you off and steal everything. Watching the perversity in the land that Rehoboam is not ignorant of. You would think that the very next verse would say, Rehoboam finally broke and and he confessed his sins to God. And he saw that at what height that God was with the nation in Solomon. Now he doesn't even have the golden shields. God, we are, we are sinning before you. We are full of sin. Holy, holy, holy are you, God. And there would be repentance. But that's not what he did. What does he do? He tries to cover up the weakness of his kingdom by making new shields of bronze. They still have a little bit of shine to them. And if held just right in the sun from a distance, it might still look like there's gold in the kingdom. But God knows Shishak ripped off all the gold. And what does Rehoboam do? He tries to cover it up with these bronze shields. He wanted to make it look like he was still in a right standing with God. But he only had the bronze. Which reminded me uh, that outward appearances are always a trap for us. As we prayed through our prayer points, the fear of man is always a trap. If God has allowed the gold to be taken as a consequence of bad decisions or whatever situation it might be, don't try to cover it up with some makeshift bronze replacement. But allow God to do a thorough work as he's getting your attention. Now, pick up with me in verse 1 of chapter 15. Now, in the 18th year of King Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, Abijam became king over Judah. He reigned three years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Maacah, the granddaughter of Absalom. And he walked in all the sins of his father, which he had done before him. His heart was not loyal to the Lord his God, as was the heart of his father David. With Jeroboam ruling up in the north, now Abijam, it begins to rule in the south over Judah. He followed the sinful pattern of his dad, Rehoboam, which is often the temptation of kids today to follow after the patterns of their dads. Like maybe you're here today and your dad is not walking with the Lord. Don't follow his pattern. That's not the way to go. And I know that you've been given an example that isn't from from God, and and a dad's example is very important in the life of a child, even an adult child. 
don't follow, don't follow Abijah here where he just took the easy route and he followed in the sins of his dad. Some generation needs to break the cycle. Let it be your generation. And dads, dads listening in on the radio, dads listening in to maybe somebody's playing this Bible study in the background at the shop and you don't want to hear it and they keep turning it up and now you're a dad listening and you know you're not right with the Lord. It's never too late to not only get right with the Lord, but to be a good example for your kids. To get down on your knees, look them in the eye, or whatever, however age they are. If they're, you know, if they're 45, don't get down on your knees and look them in the eye. So you can stand up for that one. Or maybe sit down together and say, son, daughter, I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? You don't want this to be written in the history of your, writing out the history of your family and your kid. It says that your kids walked in the same sins that you did. But change the generation. His heart was not loyal to God. So different from David. And it doesn't take long, does it? Except a couple generations for God to be lost in families. We see the pattern early on in the children of Israel. The first generation that was delivered from Egypt, they both knew God and saw God. They saw the miracles. And the second generation, they knew God but only heard about those things that God did. By the time the third generation comes around, they neither know God nor have they heard about God. Just a couple generations to be lost. Our testimonies are powerful and important. And and then we're watching our kids get into their own personal walk with the Lord so they can experience God themselves. So we raise our kids on our experiences, but then we release our kids so that they might have their own experiences in the Lord because God is alive. And it doesn't have to be, our kids don't have to experience God the way we did, all messed up, but sometimes that happens. And it's a heartbreaking. We need to be praying more and more for those children that have chosen to go in the opposite direction of a godly family. Not perfect, just godly. Verse four, nevertheless, for David's sake, the Lord, his God, gave him a lamp in Jerusalem by setting up his son after him and by establishing Jerusalem because David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and had not turned aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life except in the matter of Uriah, the Hittite, except for that failure with Bathsheba and Uriah. It was a huge failure. It was no small thing. God mentions it here as a little side point. Verse 6, there was war between Rehoboam and Jeroboam all the days of his life. Now the rest of the acts of Abijam and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? There was war between Abijam and Jeroboam So Abijam rested with his fathers and they buried him in the city of David. Then Asa reigned in his place. David was righteous, but not perfect. It was because of his faithfulness that the remnant of God's light continued to shine even when there was bad leadership. And we're reminded again, as we leave a legacy for those that will come after us, as they're writing our story, it'll be very similar. You know, we were righteous, we had a heart for God, except for that one matter or except for this little weakness. And over this banner, I have it written down from verses four through eight. I just wrote on the side to remind me, this is a description, yet again, of the grace of God. God's grace. The nation didn't deserve God to be favorable to them. But he showed grace. He showed grace and he kept his promises. And the next king now, King Asa in verse 16, There was war between Asa and Baasha, the king of Israel, all 
their days. But we first introduced to him in verse 9. So I skipped all that. Verse 9. In the 20th year of Jeroboam, king of Israel, Asa became king over Judah. He reigned 41 years in Jerusalem. His grandmother's name was Maacah, the granddaughter of Absalom. Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, as did his father David. That's a turn of events, verse 11. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He banished, verse 12, and all the, and the perverted persons from the land and removed all the idols that his fathers had made. He removed Maacah, his grandmother, from being queen mother because she had made an obscene gesture, image of Asherah. And Asa cut down her obscene image and burned it by the book Kidron. But the high places were not removed. Nevertheless, Asa's heart was loyal to the Lord all his days. He also brought into the house of the Lord the things which his father had dedicated and the things which he himself had dedicated, silver and gold utensils. There was war, it says, between Asa and Baasha, king of Israel, all their days. And Baasha, king of Israel, came up against Judah and built Ramah that he might let none go out or come in to King Asa, Asa, king of Judah. Verse 18, Then Asa took all the silver and gold that was left in the treasuries of the house of the Lord, the treasuries of the king's house, and delivered them into the hand of the servants. And King Asa sent them to Ben-Hadad, the son of Tabramam, the son of Hezion, king of Syria, who dwelt in Damascus, saying, Let's make a treaty between you and me, as there was between my father and your father. See, I have sent you a present of silver and gold. Come and break your treaty with Baasha, king of Israel, so that he will withdraw from me. So Ben-Hadad heeded King Asa, sent the captains of his armies against the cities of Israel. He attacked Ejon, Dan, Abel-Beth, Maacah, and all of Chenaroth with all the land of Naphtali, verse 21. And it happened when King Baasha, when Baasha heard it, that he stopped building Ramah and remained in Tirzah. Then King Asa made a proclamation throughout all Judah. None was exempted. And they took away the stones and timber of Ramah, which Baasha had used for building. With him, the king Asa built Geba, Benjamin, and Mizpah. And the rest of the acts of Asa, all his might, all that he did, and the cities which he built, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? But in the time of his old age, he was diseased in his feet. And when we get to chronicles, we'll go into depth on that. But if you want to read ahead, 2 Chronicles chapter 16, we'll give you more insight on the end of Asa. That little statement, he was old age, he has disease in his feet. So Asa rested with his fathers, was buried with his fathers in the city of David. His father, Jehoshaphat, his son, reigned in his place. So Asa's the third king of Judah, the first good king. We'll learn more, much more about him when we get to Chronicles, a little bit more in depth. I was struck when I read through this, one of the first things that he says about him in verse 11 is that he did right in the eyes of the Lord as his father David did. But in verse 14, it says that the high places were not removed. Because God, he recognizes our imperfections, our sinful imperfections. And he also at the same time acknowledges, he recognizes our imperfections and he acknowledges our heart's desire to follow him. And I wonder if there are some listening to me today that don't give yourself, uh, you don't encourage yourself enough with this same truth, where yes, you acknowledge, you recognize your weaknesses and your sins, but you also acknowledge that you really do have a heart that's seeking after God. Usually it's the other way around. 
We acknowledge, you know, that, that we have a heart for the Lord, but we emphasize our sin and that condemnation where you could do really well and you're seeking the Lord and you make some dumb mistake and then all you do is dwell on that dumb sinful mistake when in reality you can just repent of that sin and get back to seeking the Lord. Instead of dwelling on it or identifying yourself by it or beating yourself up with shame and with, with laying layers of guilt on you when, when by faith in Jesus Christ he's removed that Another thing I'm thinking too is that, man, when God's called you to do something, don't be like Asa. Just go all the way. You know, you're making, you're getting rid of all these perverted people and you're destroying all the images. I mean, Asa even, take care of his, you know, he even did business with his own grandma. His own grandmother. He says, out of here. No false, no false worship here. But he doesn't complete the task in removing the high places. And stay strong. When you start something, finish it. Don't be so quick to quit or fail under the pressure. But finish it. This thing with his grandmother, removing his grandma, which is pretty serious. That would be a serious thing to do, to remove his grandmother out of the way. But sometimes grandmothers need to be moved out of the way. That's a word of the Lord. They need to be moved out of the way for the will of God to be accomplished. We see that with Asa here. I want to show you something in Luke chapter 14. Would you turn over there with me? Luke chapter 14. Pick up with me in verse 25, would you? Because it reminds me of a teaching that Jesus gave. In Luke chapter 14, it's a, it's a stunning, for those of you that are new to the Bible, uh, this is a stunning teaching. And as, as you read it, you're reminded in verse 25, great multitudes went with him and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my, cannot be my disciple. That, that's pretty strong language. If you don't hate your own blood relation family, Jesus says, then you cannot be a disciple. And those are put in opposition to them. Now we automatically think of words in the context of how we understand them. And when we think of hatred, we immediately thinking uh, of, of mistreating or hurting or in some way saying bad things about them. And that's not the essence of this word at all. It's a word of value. It's a word of priority hate my mom, hate my dad, or in this case with Asa, I need to express a, a hatred toward my grandmother who is in rank, rebellious idolatry, or I have to uh, hate a grandmother that is resisting the Holy Spirit. Yes, yes, but how? The idea is the priority of commitments. Jesus would be saying it this way, when you've chosen to follow God, You've chosen to be his disciple. And the choice between following Jesus is put up against the choice of the pressure of your own human family. Jesus says the choice is for him. You could even say, as some translators have, have and commentators have said, instead of the word hate, you replace it with the word love less. The highest priority of love is reserved for God alone. 
he tells us that we're to love the Lord God with all our heart, soul, and mind and love our neighbor and ourselves. That's the order. But oftentimes in the, real, in the reality of life, that's flipped around. And time and time again, I've seen, uh, time again I've seen families and believers have a higher love for their family than they do for the things of the Lord. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not speaking about church. I'm not speaking about ministry. I'm not speaking about some commitment you made to do something for your church. Let's not reduce it down to something that the Bible isn't speaking of. I mean really making the commitments that will lead your family in a love relationship with God. I mean really being able to put your foot down when it's relation to relatives in your family that as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord unashamedly. It's not that we don't love you anymore. It's not that we care less about you, but we have a new love that's been introduced to our home and to our family. And when it comes to our choices and the decision matrix that we have, Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, your decision matrix must be for him first. If it's not, not only can you not be his disciple, in that moment you're not living as his disciple. I mean, whether it's parents worshiping their children or it's a marriage that has been reduced to rubble by allowing in-law, the influence of in-laws to do a destructive work or on and on, there can be examples. This isn't, hatred isn't, Jesus isn't teaching us to be mean-spirited, you know, toward our parents and, and just a heavy duty, you know, man, I hate you because of Jesus. It, it's, that, that's sinful. But the reality of this is that when you're following Jesus, you're truly all in or not in at all. And I see Asa here as an example. When it came down to the perverted persons in the land, took care of it. When it came down to the idols his, dad, his father's made, took care of it. And when it came down to his grandmother, who was seen like the pagans in Israel, they had a queen mother. What did he do? He removed her. We don't know exactly what that meant. If he came and picked her up and took her off, I don't, I don't know what it meant. But whatever it meant, it was declared that she was no longer viewed as a pagan queen mother in the nation of Israel, his own grandmother. And I'm certain that it came with requests. And I'm certain that it came with the, the type of reasoning that wasn't successful because he had to not only remove her, but also the obscene image obscene image. There's nothing that is more un... uh, What's the word I want to use? Just not beautiful as an obscene senior citizen. It's just not attractive. It's not attractive as we grow older in age, we become more crude in our language or more crude in our images or the older we are, the more we'd be growing in the wisdom of the Lord that God would give us the gray hair as a crown of our heads to represent him and not be obscene. And here Asa, he deals with it. Then notice in verse 16 as we read, there's war between Asa. Even though he's a good and godly king, he led people knowing that he answered to the Lord. Again, Asa is another leader that's not perfect. We'll learn in 2 Chronicles 16. I encourage you to read it while it's fresh on your mind as he 
has this disease and he seeks out help from man instead of seeking help from the Lord. It ends disastrously and unfortunately. And I have to say, uh, I know this personally in my own life. Seeking the help of men instead of relying upon the Lord ends disastrously. The consequence is just so painful and so hard thinking that men, and I'm, I'm a man that knows the Bible. I know what the Bible says not to trust in horses and chariots. I know what the meaning of it is behind. I know what it, I know, I've seen what it's like to trust in men and, and I've experienced the disaster. So if you let, uh, you let Asa's example warn you, you let my example warn you, don't trust in men. Trust in the Lord your God. Men will let you down. It will be a painful letdown. They will not come through like you expected. And only because God allows that to reveal himself to you that he's your sufficiency. That he's going to take care of you and me. And even if you have to deal with some of the consequences of that type of decision, God will still be faithful. And we don't want to trust in man. And yet it's repeated over and over again. God is looking for that man or woman of faith, you know. He's looking for that one that's going to trust in him, that will live day by day and moment by moment, relying upon the resources of God and not the resources of Adam. Do you know everything that you offer to God in the flesh is actually your God's, or Adam's gift to you in sin? Learning how to deal things with Adam, running away from God, sinning, not leading his home well, plunging the whole human race into sin. It's all Adam. Our flesh is just from Adam. And when will we learn finally that the resources of Adam are empty? Because in Adam we've all sinned and inherited a fleshly set of tools and habits that never show us success. And yet we use them over and over again. They never give us the success that we thought they would bring. And Asa, we'll see that in Second Chronicles, we'll develop that much more uh, when we get there. Verse 25 now. Now Nadab... The son of Jeroboam became king over Israel, heading back up to the northern kingdom now. In the second year of Asa, king of Judah, and he reigned over Israel two years, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. It's almost like reading Judges again and reading through some of the Judges and the cycles that they went through. Uh, He walked in the way of his father in his sin, which he had made Israel sin. Verse 27, Then Baasha, the son of Ahijah, of the house of Issachar, conspired against him. And Baasha killed him at Gibbethon, which belonged to the Philistines, while Nadab and all Israel laid siege to Gibbethon. Baasha killed him in the third year of Asa, king of Judah, and reigned in his place. And it was so, when he became king, that he killed all those of the house of Jeroboam. He didn't leave to Jeroboam anyone that breathed until he had destroyed him, according to the word of the Lord, which he had spoken by his servant Ahijah the Shilonite, which was just five years previously, by the way. Verse 30, because of the sins of Jeroboam, which he had sinned and by which he had made Israel sin, because of his provocation with which he had provoked the Lord God of Israel to anger. Now the rest of the acts of Nadab and all that he did are not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel. So we're taken back to the north, another evil king. Nadab predictably follows the sinful ways of his dad. And he continues in his father's sins. I have these marked. You might want to mark them in your Bible. But in verse 26, I just underlined that. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. He walked in the way of his father. 
That's going to be a theme constantly that God's going to be warning us about, dads and moms. And as a result, he's assassinated by Asha and succeeds him as king. And just, to, just for you Bible students, just compare verse 29 with chapter 14, and you see the confirmation. And then the, finally, as we end the chapter, it says, there was war between Asa and Baasha, king of Israel, all their days. In the third year of Asa, king of Judah, Baasha, the son of Ahijah, became king over Israel and Terzah and reigned 24 years. He did evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of Jeroboam and in his sin, which he made Israel sin. So now Baasha rules and has the opportunity to really lead Israel back to the covenantal worship of the one true God. Every new king, even though we're reading it quickly and we see, oh, neither did evil, walked in the evil of his father except for Asa, that each king has an opportunity to do what's right. Each king has an opportunity to change the tide of the nation. But of his own free will, he chose the life of sin. And even though he's witnessed himself the judgment of God, which resulted in the death of his brother, he still chooses the route of sin, worshiping idols and not the living God. And as we'll learn in, the, in, in our chapter next time, he chose, the elevation, uh, he chose the elevation of God of him to king as an opportunity to fulfill his own personal ambitions. Listen, spiritual leadership given to us within the context of the church today is not to fulfill our own personal ambitions. And it's not to fulfill our own personal agendas. But rather it's to fulfill the agenda of God. The Bible declares us in the New Testament as under-shepherds. Peter would tell us in 1 Peter chapter 5 that we're to shepherd the flock of God that's among us. Jesus is the true shepherd, and we as his servants are his under-shepherds. He's actually called Jesus as the chief shepherd. And each time we're given a responsibility in his holy and righteous church, the bride of Christ, we have an opportunity to do things right. to to lead people in the ways of the Lord. And a lot of guys and gals too somehow begin to think that they're the shepherds, that they're the true leaders. And it's not so. We're under shepherds. What's been given to us has been entrusted to us. There's a word that Paul, the apostle, uses when he talks to the church in Corinth. He calls us stewards. Stewards. Now a steward was a person that had responsibility over everything but owned nothing. And it's a great picture of ministry. We have responsibility over the lives of people. We have responsibility over caring for them in a spiritual way. Now, this is specifically toward leaders and pastors right now, but you can, you can take this truth and expand it into the responsibility that God has given to you to shepherd people at work to take care of them in the name of Jesus Christ, to care for them, to check in on them, to pray for them. And and what holds back, what, what is it that holds people back the most is exactly what we were praying about, fear. And fear of embarrassment. You know, Ed, are you telling me tomorrow to walk up into my boss because I know he's been going through a tough time? Are you telling me to go knock on his door, have my boss invite me into his office, and you want me to look at my boss, the guy that signs my checks, the one that can say in an instant that I'm gone and I'm fired. You want me to look him in the eye and say, hey, I've noticed you've been down for a while. Can I pray for you? You want me to do that, Ed? Yes. Yeah, but I'll get fired. Maybe you will. But maybe you won't. Maybe you will, but maybe you won't. 
And the difference between which one you look at, whether it, you walk into work tomorrow and my voice is going to be in your head all day tomorrow because somebody's boss has been going through it and somebody's been concerned about their boss and they've been fearful. And the difference between maybe he will or she will or maybe he won't, he won't or she won't, the difference between those two is whether you look with eyes of faith or eyes of fear. Because what's the worst thing that can happen? What's the worst thing that can happen? You get fired? No. That's not the worst thing that can happen. The worst thing that can happen is you keep your job, you remain disobedient, and your boss goes to hell. That's the worst thing that can happen. You go ahead. I kind of want my boss. Don't think like that. You don't even think like that because Jesus loves your boss. (laughs) Spiritual leaders, we cover this thoroughly in our servants class, but sufficient for today as we think of the kings and each chance that they get. Asa, man, he went, man, he went so far. We're going to have many other good kings as well, but he went so far. Left a few things, but is known as a good king. For those of us entrusted with spiritual leadership, still some of you are going to be entrusted in spiritual leadership in the future, in this church or your church, wherever you might be. Spiritual leaders are spiritual servants. And the degree that you're a successful leader in God's eyes is to the degree that you're a successful servant in God's eyes. More responsibility does not mean less service, it means more. And we're servants, nothing more, nothing less. The fact that you're a spiritual leader, the fact that I'm a spiritual leader, is nothing more than the grace of God. Because nobody deserves to be given responsibility to love people and care for people. You know, you, you look at everything in our life is an act of grace. What do we deserve exactly? What is it that we deserve? Have we forgotten where we've come from? Have we forgotten what, where we were before? I mean, what do exactly do we deserve? Well, whatever it is that we deserve, God has given so gracious to us and so good to us. Not only has he saved our soul and secured our future, but he's allowed us to be vessels. He's been, allowed us to be tools. He's allowed us to be used in his hand to make a difference in people's lives. And I have to say, there's always these seasons there's always these seasons. As you're praying for pastors and leaders in your church, as you're praying for their wives and their children who serve equally with them, as you pray for those that volunteer and serve their hearts out while they're homeschooling during the day or they're running a business in that, in, during the day, or what, as you're praying for the leaders of your church, your local church, and all that God is doing in their lives, there, there are those seasons where you think you're not making a difference because you don't see visibly I mean, if you you go through a week and all your counseling appointments are just bad, 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 and the last one was really bad. We were talking uh, today about some situations in our pastor's meeting, and one of the brothers shared about a counseling appointment many long time ago, but he was talking about how bad it was, that it was so bad that that one of the people in the, one of the couple got up and just walked out right in the middle. I would say that's bad. I mean, it's better than throwing something at you across the desk, but, you know, that's bad. Because when you come into our, you know, these, the, we, the, we go home exhausted because counseling is very, very hard, very difficult. The Holy Spirit's the counselor, but he uses us. And when you're wrestling with somebody and you're wrestling with the emotions and there's so much resistance and you can see it in their eyes and you can see it in their, in their body language and you can see it, I don't want to talk about it, I don't want to do this. And, and so much so you're just like, enough is enough, I'm out of here. 
it's a painful thing. You don't wake up in the morning thinking, I wonder who's going to be mad at me when I invest three hours in their lives when it should have been an hour and I had to push these other appointments back and I invest three hours and at the two hour and 59 minute mark, they get up and bail on it and slam the door on their way out. When you pray, recognize that there are those seasons where you don't see any outward fruit. It's not just for pastors and leaders. You may see it in your own life. You may question sometimes, why am I even following God? I don't see any outward fruit. There are times when you don't see any outward fruit when you plant seeds. As we were sharing with you the opportunity to go pick corn as a family in order to benefit the food bank of the Rockies, which we're still taking signups, by the way. So it would be a great opportunity for you to go out. They still need some folks to go out and pick this corn. While when they planted the seed, it took some time to see anything come from that seed. You just look at the field and you're like, well, what, what happened to the seed? What happened to the seed that I planted? Well, just give it some time. Get through the season. Before you know it, you're going to have more. Those seeds are going to produce more than you can possibly think. But what does the Bible say about seeds? That unless a seed dies, unless it dies, you're not going to see anything come up. It requires the death of the seed in order for the corn to grow. But that wasn't the point Jesus was making. The point Jesus was making is in your life and mine. Unless we die to ourselves, you won't see anything grow. And God allows these seasons in our lives when there's appearance of, you know, there's no progress in my marriage, Ed. You need to die to yourself. You know, there's no progress with my kids right now, Ed. You need to die to yourself. You know, there's no progress in my little Bible study that you've got to die to yourself. You know, there's no progress in my friendship. You need to die to yourself. And as you die, that's where, the, that's where life is produced. And so there are those seasons, aren't there, where we just don't see any progress. We're just wondering when there's no fruit on the vine. Listen, the Bible says that God is still faithful. And he's doing a work in you and inside of you so that you and I, we will learn to die to ourselves so that life might come. And we're, the banner over most of Kings and Chronicles will be the title of this message, that people suffer with poor leadership. And those of you that are leaders and those of you that are entrusted, just please heed my word. And if I had a mirror here, I would say it to a mirror myself. Be a good leader. Your life matters to the people that are following you. Don't take advantage of your position and don't take advantage of the people that have put their trust in you. Serve them, serve them well. And to the people that are listening that have leaders in their lives, just remember, you'll never meet a leader that's perfect. So it's grace going out and it's grace returning and that's where the world sees the true grace of God through his church, where there's love and grace and mercy flowing in the community. So Father, we ask for your, uh, th- these truths, these, this is little exhortation on leaders and and maybe the, um, I always say maybe, Lord, because I think you put these things on my heart, but I'm not sure. But marriages that don't seem to be making progress, relationships don't need, need to be making progress, or don't seem to be making progress. Maybe some leadership mistakes that need to be gracefully handled. I know I look in a mirror, Lord, I want to be a good leader, I don't want to be a bad leader. 
I want to serve well and serve more, not serve poorly and serve less. And I know at the heart of hearts, I'm surrounded by men and women that have the same heart, Lord, to do the hard work of the ministry. Even if it means a slam door or, you know, something that didn't work out like we would want it to. We feel like Samuel sometimes. When they rejected Samuel, he got all bent out of shape and then, God, you told him, they're not rejecting you, Samuel. They're rejecting me. So would you pour your spirit on us tonight, God? Would you revive us? We've taken and invested our night here on a Wednesday night to seek you and to draw near to you, to love you and to receive from you. And, and we're reading through this section and we go, what in, what in the world possibly could come out of this text? And I know if we had all the time in the world, a lot more would come out in this text. They're so rich and so full. And I can't wait till we get to Elijah and we meet Elijah the prophet and just the faithfulness of you through his life, Lord. And then Elisha and the, and the various kings that we get to meet, Lord, and the, the ones that did good, warning by the bad and just encouraged by the good, Lord. And I pray that you would for those that have the seeds planted in the ground right now, there doesn't seem to be any fruit in the vine. God, that, that you would enable us to, to die to ourselves and to live to you in Jesus' name. Amen. We pray that you've been touched by this study from Calvary Aurora. For prayer or a copy of this study, call area code 303-628-7200. Be blessed this week in the Lord.